You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Do you want more stories of military women veterans? I just launched a book sharing 28 stories of military women. It includes stories ranging from women in the process of joining the military to women who have served and retired. Stories from the Army, Air Force, Marines, and Navy. But don't take my word for it. Hear what Natalie said about the book. This is a fabulous collection of inspirational stories of endurance, struggles, and women forging their own futures. The diversity of their background and experience is fascinating, but the broad range of military careers is astounding and sets to heart how integral women are in the military. This is a must-read for anyone considering a career with the armed forces or struggling to figure out their future career. The challenge and adjustments these women have made to create the life best suited for them is the type of motivational encouragement that can help others be confident in reaching their dreams. Check it out on my website, Airman to Mom. Dot com or on Amazon. My guest today is Carrie Carwan. She was an officer in the Coast Guard, and I'm really excited to hear more about her story. So welcome to the show. Thank you. My first question is, why did you decide to join the military? My father, sister, and brother all went to West Point. That's the Army's military academy, and it was kind of expected that I would follow some kind of suit, but I preferred the Coast Guard missions, and I wanted to feel like I was directly impacting the public that I was serving, which the Coast Guard does on a daily basis, so that's why I chose them. I like their mission. So you decided to go to the Coast Guard Academy instead of West Point? Correct. Is the process the same? Do you have to get the nomination and all no. the other steps? I don't know. The Coast Guard doesn't require a congressional nomination. It's only on your own merit. It's actually harder to get in, I think. The Coast Guard, there's like 5,000 people apply and only take 200 and something. So it's like one out of 18, whereas the West Point, 10,000 people apply and they'll take 1,000. So one out of 10 get in. So it's harder to get into the Coast Guard. So what do they base it on your grades or what is the information they collect? to? Well, it's been over 25 years, but uh, they just look at you as a well-rounded individual, community service, academics, athletics, you know, stuff like that. Figure out in some crazy way if they think you'll be a good fit or not. What was your time like at the academy? <laughs> That's going to take more than 40 minutes to talk about, and I'm sure there's other things we'd rather discuss. In my, in my situation, I went for a marine science degree, a bachelor's degree, and I never used the degree. I thought I was going to be doing something different, and I got a degree in something that I've never used. It was like a biochem track of the marine science field. I wish I'd have known that because I wouldn't have wasted my time doing it in school for four years for anybody, no matter what school you go to. I feel like college is kind of where they test to see if you can learn and it's not really how you're going to actually do your job. Right. So can you give me an overview of your military experience after you graduated? It was complicated. My class had, I think, 42 graduating engineers, but there were 60 billets for engineers on ships. So they went to what they consider was the next technical major, which was mine, and picked the last 20 of us to be engineers. So I had no engineering background, knowledge, or education. 
and I went engineering on the Coast Guard Cutter Chase for two years and was an engineer uh, watchstander. I got qualified and I did everything I needed to do, which is a lot of work and a little overwhelming at times because that wasn't my, if I wanted an engineering degree, I would have got it while I was at school and I didn't. But then because I got fully qualified on my ship, when it came time to transfer, I got sent to another engineering billet for another three years. So my first five years after graduating, I did engineering work. I worked on a ship and then I worked at a shipyard fixing boats. What do you do as an engineer on a ship? They just have the entire plants, all the electronics, auxiliary engines, everything that keeps a ship running and afloat. That's our job to maintenance and do rounds on and know how it systems work and repair if necessary and fueling the ship and um yeah it's so a lot of work a lot of different things yeah it was uh it was good i mean i enjoyed i enjoyed learning but it was a lot of work so after your first five years then did you switch career fields or I wouldn't say I switched career fields. They just determined that my engineering track that they'd had me on for two tours now wasn't going to result in me getting up too high because I don't have the academic background in the engineering field, which was a kind of a, a must need if you go up higher in rank. So they released me out of the engineering field into the marine science, science safety field. They changed the verbology of what they call stuff. We've Coast Guard's gone through a couple different changes. Yeah, I ended up showing up at the uh, sector. Well, it was a Marine Safety Office, Houston, Galveston, and it was in the process of sectorization. So we were changing how we do business. And I did two years facility security, uh, implementing the MTSA regulations for, this is after September 11th. And then I did a year of pollution response and then a year of vessel inspecting. And I also stood command duty watch during that time frame. So I had wore a lot of different hats and got to try a lot of different things and got my marine safety pin at the end of it. And I liked it. I like the variety that the Coast Guard has, but it makes it very hard to get really good at something when you're constantly changing it out. Yeah, that would make it hard. What did you do after that? I went from the sector of Houston Galveston to work-life supervisor at District 5, which was in Portsmouth. Virginia, Chesapeake, Virginia. And that was, I had a civilian staff and we would deal with rape, sexual assaults, uh, domestic violence, that kind of, we would give training and then we would respond to those issues that happened for uh, military members within our AOR. And we had, it's like North Carolina, Virginia, at like part of four states or something like that. And 7,000 people total, I think I was responsible for making sure they were trained and responded to if there was a problem. After I left that job, we went through what's called modernization. So they short toured me into another billet in the area. And I was a logistics for just under a year at uh, Sector Hampton Roads. And I left there and went to California. <laughs> so were your first two tours were sea tours? Were the rest of them all, were you land-based? My first tour was a sea tour. My second tour in engineering, I was at a shipyard fixing boats, but I wasn't on a boat. And then all the rest of the time, were you on a boat or were you on land? Mainly on land. I did deploy. So part of my, you're supposed to have like a primary and a secondary career path. I ended up having like four different 
tracks that I regularly dipped into. I did the engineering for the first two, and then I had like admin and logistics, and then I had response and logistics. And so I did like two tours and everything, two tours and admin, logistics, response and engineering, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to have a more dedicated career path. But when I was after the Virginia tour, when I was out in California, I got deployed to Deepwater Horizon and I um, did that for a couple months. And then I went after I left that uh, district response advisory tour in California, I went to the Coast Guard Incident Management Assist Team that was stood up as a fallout from Deepwater Horizon. And I was the logistics department head at that unit. And my job was responding to emergencies. So we had Texas City Wise Bill, and there was the Ebola crisis, and there was the customs border stuff. And it was just any kind of emergency the Coast Guard would get involved in. This unit was specifically geared to providing the incident management kind of piece to making sure that we responded correctly. I don't think people know a lot about what the Coast Guard's role and mission is, especially the behind the scenes stuff that they're doing. Is there anything that you did that you don't think people would really expect someone who served in the Coast Guard to do or be a part of? Half the time, people don't think that I'm a Coast Guard person, (laughs) which is crazy because we have like the highest number of females in any service. I think the Coast Guard has the best representation and yet everyone always is like, oh, your husband was in. I'm like, no, actually it was me. (laughs) But anyway. That's um, normal. That's normal. The Coast Guard, we have like, I think it's up to 11 plus missions. We keep adding missions and our, we don't necessarily get the, the same funding or people to back these said missions. So, I mean, we do ice breaking ops, we do ATON, we do, you know, obviously drug interdiction and migrant ops and search and rescue. And it just, it's great that the Coast Guard can wear so many hats, but I also feel like we become a jack of all trades and a master of none. And, and we are, when it comes to, vying for funding and stuff at Congress's level, like we get overlooked. Uh, we didn't get paid. You know that, right? This last mm-hmm. year, postseas were going to work and not getting a paycheck. And I was just, I was embarrassed and ashamed that our government didn't know that they would be doing that to people who were, you know, there's a very small population of people that serve their country. And for those folks to be forgotten is unconscionable, you know? I think anyone connected to the military military community knew that was going on and I hope people outside the military community knew and yeah it was just a really long time so it was horrible. Knowing it's going on and doing the right thing to stop it from happening are two totally different things. That's very true. And you can say oh I meant to slam on the brakes and not hit the dog but if the dog is dead it doesn't matter what your intentions were you still killed it. (laughs) That's very true. You talked about deploying for I can't remember what the operation was what did you say it was yeah what was that about I haven't watched the movie version that they put out but there was just an oil rig off the coast that um, had a leak that they couldn't cap and stop so it just kept pumping stuff into the environment and that's the difference between a vessel having a problem like the Exxon Valdez or whatever if it spills the most you can lose is however much the vessel can carry so there's a finite capacity but when you're talking a oil rig pipeline and stuff, it's, it's going to keep going until that reserve is met, which who knows what that is. So it's a little scarier, you know, problem to deal with because you don't know exactly how bad it is going to be, you know? Yeah. 
Were there any other deployments that you were a part of? No, I mean, I did a bunch on my ship where we went to, I think we did a, a South Patrol with migrant ops and drug and addiction. We did a SAR search and rescue for the crab fishing fleet up off Alaska. And then we did a uh, six-month patrol of the Persian Gulf with the Russell Cromwell and the O'Brien. Uh, forgetting two Navy, or no, a Navy destroyer and two frigates. And that was... What was it like to be in the Persian Gulf? It was hot. <laughs> the temperature in our the engineering plant anyway is very hot it runs hot it's engineering it's you know engines are putting off heat and then it's just hot over there and I remember that I think the stay time in the engine room was like eight minutes so once you were in there for eight minutes you had to get out and be out for a couple hours and hydrate otherwise you couldn't they wouldn't let you back down to do more work and stuff it's just I remember being very hot yeah, that's crazy. Was it with with going in and out every eight minutes or like to switch off and was it possible to get work done or did it make it really challenging and you guys had to figure out a system to make it work? Well, I mean, you had your rounds to do and we, I don't remember exactly how we figured out how to do it, but it was doable. The main thing was making sure nobody, you know, got dehydrated. You were sweating. I mean, you're just dripping wet. like everybody. Right. Yeah, so you want to make sure everybody's safety came first and the rest of it, you know, we work through, so. And as an officer in the Coast Guard, how is that different from, like, an enlisted troop? I mean, we all stand watches and duties. Our responsibilities are different, so the enlisted folks would usually be more boots to ground in the field, and then the officers would, so would you know, sometimes go with them on boarding teams and things like that, but we would be more in charge of directing traffic and, you know, like the big picture items and doing a lot of the admin stuff. And they got to do all the fun stuff and we got to do all the paperwork. <laughs> that sounds about right. But it didn't exclude you guys from doing watches and that sort of thing. That was something that everyone did. Yeah. When you're uh, on a ship, everyone has to pull their weight. And then when you're junior, so as a junior officer, you're in the field a lot with the enlisted, which is good because then you understand what it is they're trying to do. So as you become more senior and you're more in a management role, you know what it is they need in order to function. So it's not like the officers didn't have any field time. It's just as you become more senior, you get less and less of it. Did you face any struggles while serving in the military? I did. Towards the end of my career, I, at uh, 38 years old, needed to pursue infertility treatments. And the Coast Guard was not supportive of that. Was there any reason in particular that they weren't supportive or? Based on policy, they considered fertility treatments to be elective, like a, a nose job or a boob job would be an elective surgery. So me trying to get pregnant was considered in the same category as an elective surgery, something I chose to do. In my case, I had a medical condition, uh, PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it validated the fact that I needed some medical help, but the Coast Guard didn't recognize that as a medical reason. So that stayed elective. And so anything negative that came of those treatments, they held against me and they did. So that is part of the reason why I ended up being retired. It wasn't my choice. That's really sad because they're taking something that's like two totally different things. Like I completely agree. I had, I did an EEO complaint and in the EEO complaint, the officer that was representing my former supervisor 
compared getting fertility treatments to the same as getting a DUI for justification and lowering my marks. And I was just, did you really just compare me trying to get pregnant to someone having an alcohol offense? I just was floored by the idea. I, I still, to this day, can't even understand how they came to that conclusion as that being a valid, you know, <laughs> just still don't understand. Yeah, that's not even, that's, that's wrong. I mean, it's almost, you're like, you have to be joking, right? That can't possibly be coming out of your mouth right now. But no, that was just a few years ago, so. That's really sad. And you said because of it, because you got lower marks because of getting infertility treatments that you ended up having to retire from them. Yeah, I, um, I screened for command of an 05 job and I uh, was in an 05 job, but I was never promoted to 05. And if you don't promote up and you have so many chances to do it, they force you to retire. So I did not make, even though I hit some, I think some major milestones to prove that I was commander or material I never was picked up for it so even though I did the job I actually filled an 05 billet and did the job for two years they still wouldn't promote me to the position and without that promotion I can't stay in I was forced out and were you ever able to get pregnant no after so I went through multiple IVF treatments uh, because I'm in the military I didn't get to stay where I wanted or go necessarily to the fertility centers I wanted to go to in one of my moves I went from California to Virginia so after we did the fertility treatment my embryos were now in California but I was now stationed in Virginia so we had our stuff shipped from California to Virginia which if you were stationary and not moving around you wouldn't have to worry about but I did have to worry about it because I was no longer in California. My embryos were damaged in shipment. They didn't put the lid on the goblet that held the glass straws of the embryos and they vibrated in transit and broke. And so I had to do another treatment to try to get those embryos back and that didn't work. So I had to do a third treatment and that didn't work. And it just was pretty much a disaster experience. And then when I retired, uh, so I had no support. I was standing watches while I was, you know, doing the infertility treatments. I got deployed to Texas City Y while I was doing an infertility treatment. So I was giving myself shots in a rental car because there was nowhere else sanitary to do it. You had to like do them in your stomach and your butt. And <laughs> I'm out in the field somewhere. So I'm like, well, I'll just have to make do. Yeah. And of course, fertility treatments, you want to not be stressed out and you want to have good sleep and you want to have good dietary and the whole thing, pretty much everything you needed to, to help make something like that successful. I was not getting access to or being allowed to do because of my job. So not only were they not supporting my IVF treatments, they were almost sabotaging the success of them. And then when I retired, the VA authorized, they found my PCOS to be service related and they authorized me to have IVF treatments which at the time, so I, when I was 38 years old and I was young enough to actually take advantage of infertility treatments to the point where there's a chance for success, I right. had zero help financially or with my job. And then once I'm retired and I'm 43 and the chances of it being successful are like not good at all. Now I have, now I have the medical care coverage that I couldn't get before. And it's like, well, I appreciate getting it now, but it's like a daily dollar short. And it's, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's Where was this five years ago when I really needed it and could have used it and it might have actually worked? Right. I'm uh, working with the SWAN. It's a service women's action network. 
I went to the Hill this February to talk with Congress, congressmen and senators about the lack of support for uh, infertility care in the military and what we could do better. And, you know, they did an informal survey and they found out that the infertility was higher in service women. I'm seeing a specialist on the side and they found toxins in my system that, you know, could be attributing to my infertility on top of my medical condition. So there's a lot of things that are missing. There are some IVF centers, the DOD, I think Army has six of them, but they're, you don't have access to them. There's a wait list. Uh, you can't necessarily get stationed where they are. Still costs you money. Um, in my case, I was over the age limit. Like there's just, it just, it's not a uniform thing. And if I don't want to get pregnant, oh, they'll issue me the birth control or the IUI or whatever to keep me from getting knocked up. But if I want to get pregnant, not only are you on your own, but they're not going to, they're not going to help you whatsoever. And then my other beef is that folks that go through transgender take the same steroids, the hormones that I take to try to get pregnant. They take the same ones to change their gender. And I'm trying to take those to try to get pregnant and they'll support transgender, but they won't support me. Yeah, that is really frustrating. And I recently learned about Service Women Action Network and I'm working with them. So that's that they're a great organization. If you're a female veteran, you should definitely check them out. Yep, they have a free newsletter you can sign up for and then they keep you, you know, abreast of what's going on and they have the regular updates and I'm helping them now as a volunteer trying to get uh, grants and whatever other help I can do to help continue to support uh, women. Right, and this is a big issue that people don't really talk about and I didn't even know about. So thank you for telling us your story and it's just heartbreaking what you had to go through and I'm sorry for that. I'm glad that you're not sitting on the sidelines and that you're taking your experience and hopefully changing it for someone else in the future. I appreciate that. It's not, um, people still don't post on Facebook and stuff. They've had miscarriages or, you know, it's always like the baby announcements and things, you know, the happy stuff and nobody wants to say I've had my, you know, eight failed IVF. <laughs> and right. And it's very hard and frustrating because there, and miscarriages happen all the time in the military, but women don't talk about it and they don't get necessarily the support they need both emotionally and physically to process that they've had a miscarriage. Back in the day, you wouldn't even know you had one, you know, but today's technology, you can know within 10 days of getting pregnant that you're pregnant. It's kind of a disservice because now people know that they're losing, you know, babies before, whereas they didn't necessarily know you know, I guess that whole ignorance is bliss thing. So there's a lot of places and opportunity for improvement. And I hope, I mean, it kind of shocks me that I even ended up in the situation I did because I thought my mom was one of the first female police officers in England back in the day. And she told me all kinds of stories. And I thought, gosh, I'm so glad I wasn't, you know, a female in the workforce back when she was, because that just sounds horrible. And here I am, 40 years later, and my stories are not far off of what she went through. <laughs> it's like, wow, how could we have not improved, you know, like over this last multiple decades? We've really not gotten that much better in certain areas. So, yeah, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to start the podcast was because there have been a lot of positive things that have happened for women in the military, but there's still stuff like this that happens. And it's still happening and women are struggling with a lot of different issues that people don't even know about. So I really appreciate you talking about this. 
Well, I appreciate you having a platform in which I can share the story so folks can, you know, make things better. Is there anything else from your time with the Coast Guard that you want to talk on that we didn't touch on already? I would say I, I did a lot of recruiting towards the end of my uh, time in the Coast Guard. My last six months, I focused on recruiting. And I think just people, no matter what service they join, to educate themselves on what it is the service does, the pros and cons of it, and just know that when you raise your right hand and give your life to that service, that's kind of exactly what they take. And you may not end up dying serving your country, but your life is no longer your own. And I didn't understand that necessarily when I joined at 17. And then, you know, 24 years later, I realized that that's what happened. It, it felt like a bad divorce when I left the Coast Guard because of the way I was retired. It was like a, a divorce where I was abused in the relationship and then didn't realize it. And the only thing I got out of our separation was my freedom. <laughs> So, yeah, I wish I could say more positive things. The best thing was my shipmates and some of the experiences I had, but the overall politics and bureaucracy of this organization that I dedicated my life to for almost a quarter of a century was shameful in how I was treated on the way out the door. I agree. You kind of almost answered my last question, but I'm going to ask it again anyways, just because I think it might be a little bit different. But what would you tell women who are considering joining the military? You said to do your research, but is there anything else? So, and I, I know that things change over time, but, and uh, granted, maybe I'm not the best person to be giving advice because the way I did business didn't ultimately result. I mean, I had honorable service, but I didn't get the career I wanted out of it. But ultimately, you have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror. And I am proud of who I am, and I'm proud of what I've done, and I don't have a problem with with my, my contribution. I have a problem with how I was treated, but um, that's, that's another thing. So we are women. Be proud of being a woman. Know that you don't have to lose your identity in order to serve and be the best version of you that you can. And it's okay to, and we are different. Men don't have the same piping we do. We, you know, we do give birth to babies. We, you know, we have differences and we should not be segregated for those, but we should celebrate those. And I hope more women feel comfortable with that. And I think we're getting to that place where there's less of the judging and, oh, you know, you have to have your own room to breast pump. Well, would you want your wife, you know, doing that in a bathroom, which isn't necessarily sanitary? Of course not. So, I mean, there's things that it, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's crazy that we still have to say, hey, how about we do this a little bit better? And that would be the other thing. A lot of folks complain that there's a problem or that there's an issue or there's an injustice. The amount of time wasted complaining when they could actually do something about it. And that's where I have put all my focus. I, I don't even know if people I know that I served with even know that I'm doing some of this stuff because I don't have time to keep telling, you know what I mean? To mm -hmm. complain to them about it, I'm going to do something about it. And if you can't help me move it forward, then I'm not going to waste my time with it. So well, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for your service, and I'm, I'm so sorry for what happened for, to you, but I am, I am so thankful for what you're doing for the future women who are serving now and will serve in the future, and I, I like that philosophy. If, if there's something I can do, then I should do it, and I just appreciate what you're doing. Well, I appreciate you, so thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.